Turn with me to Matthew 13. When last we were together, we started to look at verses 47 to 52. And uh, we were looking at the parrot first in verses 47 to 50, the parable of the dragnet. As I said that before, this particular parable is about hell and judgment. Jesus spoke very much and very often about hell. I said many things about the abode of the damned. But of all the startling, terrifying things Jesus ever said, perhaps the most startling was when he told the Jewish religious leaders, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Uh, it seems strange to hear words like that coming from out of the mouth of Jesus. The world talks about Jesus and love and comfort and all those things. <coughs> they don't associate him with hell and damnation. But he said more about hell than he did about love. And he said more about hell than all the other biblical preachers combined. Now remember that in these parables that he's been giving, he's telling us what it will be like in the period of the world's history, this, this form of his rule. He is the king, he rules in the world, and he's allowing in this period of time good and evil to grow together, as we saw in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He's tolerant of the evil through this period, but in the end it will become a judgment, and that's why he warns about it in this parable. And this parable brings us a sense of severe warning. The Lord gives us a picture of judgment, three things, the, principle, the picture of judgment, a principle of judgment, and the peril of judgment. And so let's look at the picture of judgment briefly. We've already studied this. Verses 47, 48, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. As I told you last time, there were three ways of fishing that were done on the Sea of Galilee. And they're still being used there today. One was the standard old hook and line kind of fishing uh, where you caught one fish at a time. The second kind was using a cast net and the third kind uh, was a dragnet. Uh, today, we typically refer to this large type of net as a seine net or a, uh, it can be a gill net. That's the type of net Jesus is talking about here. And on the Sea of Galilee, they would use a technique in which they attached one end of the net to the shore and the rest of the net would be in a boat. And then as the boat left the shore, it stretched the net out into the lake and when the boat got to the end, and it would go in a half circle back to the shore and eventually return to the spot on the shore where the net was attached. And as it did, it pulled this wall, this net, back through the sea like a vertical wall capturing everything that was in front of the net. And because the net prevented, permitted nothing to escape, all sorts of things besides the desirable fish were drawn into it and caught. It swept everything in its path, weed, grass, uh, objects that were dropped overboard by boats, and fish of every kind. And when the net was filled, it would take several men, several hours, just to drag it up onto the beach because they had to be careful not to rip the net because the haul of the fish was so great. And then Jesus says, they sat down and gathered the good fish into the containers and the bad they threw away. Uh, so that's the picture 
that Jesus gives. Now he turns to interpret what the picture means. And so he teaches us the principle of judgment. This is where we stopped three weeks ago. Uh, Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out of the take out the wicked from among the righteous. There's a lot you could say about this parable, but Jesus is only interested in one element, and that is the separating process that took place on the shore. He said it is a picture of the angels separating the wicked from the righteous at the end of the age. You see, all along in the parables in this chapter, we've been learning that in this era of the kingdom, the good and the evil are mixed together and God tolerates the evil. But the time is coming when he will make a separation between those who are the true subjects of the king and love the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do not. Uh, John MacArthur explains it this way. He writes, quote, The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny, believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation, end quote. So men move about within that net (coughs) as it's drawing as if they're forever free. Uh, The thought of their eternal future and their own mortality may touch them from time to time as it were startling them, but they quickly just swim away from it and thinking they've escaped, not realizing they are completely and inescapably encircled in God's sovereign plan. Uh, The invisible net of God's judgment encroaches on every person just as that dragnet encroaches on the fish. Most people do not perceive the kingdom and they do not see God working in the world, Uh, but he is working. They may be briefly moved by a gospel of grace, by the gospel of grace or frightened by the threat of judgment, but they soon return to their old ways of thinking and living oblivious to the things of eternity. But they're inevitably moving towards judgment. All mankind is gathered in the net. The kingdom will ultimately engulf them all. And when man's day is over and Christ returns to set up his glorious kingdom, then judgment will come. Now, this same truth was taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Look back at verses 41 and 42 for a moment. It says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same idea. Jesus repeats it in this other parable. Now Jesus is not giving a full description of the last days, but he's concentrating on the judgment of unbelievers. He's speaking of judgment in general with special focus on what is referred to as the final judgment at the great white throne. Everything else just sort of passes by without comment. And I think we ought to leave the rest without comment and just take what Jesus meant to teach. Uh, When he spoke of the cast net in Matthew 4, uh, he used that in a positive way to speak about the disciples catching men for Christ. But when he speaks of this dragnet or sane or gillnet, he is talking about gathering men for judgment. Uh, This is just a general statement that all in the world are ultimately caught in the net of judgment to be separated in the end. We know from other passages that believers 
go to the Bema Seat judgment where they receive their rewards. Uh, but here Jesus focuses on the judgment of the wicked who are removed from among the righteous and thrown into hell. And notice again that in verse 49, that the angels are the ones who conduct the separation. Just as we saw in verse 41, just as we will see when we get to Matthew 24, 31, the angels come with the Lord to be those who separate the elect from the wicked. Matthew 25 says the same thing. Revelation 14 portrays the angels being involved in judgment in the last days. The angels are the agents of God's judgment. Uh, so while the kingdom may for a while tolerate good and evil growing together, the separation of the wicked from the righteous is getting closer and closer all the time. Matthew 25, 31 says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And what will he do when he comes? It says, verse 32, and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said in John 5, verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There will be a final separation. An eternal destiny will be determined for every soul that has ever lived on the face of the earth. Now some people have asked, why is this parable included since he already spoke about the separation of the evil from the good in the parable of the wheat and the tares? And the answer is it's repeated because the Lord has a compassionate heart. He wants to add one more warning. That's typical of our Lord. He warned about hell many times because he was so concerned that people not go there. Many times he said, stay awake, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. He warned in Matthew 24 that just in the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then there will be two in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. He looked out at the world and he saw a harvest moving towards judgment. He was compassionate enough to see men on the way to damnation and to call to them. And so that's why it's here. It emphasizes the separation that is the end of the, at the end of this age. And it gives the Lord a chance to express the compassion that filled his heart. You see, the Bible says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3.9 speaks of this seeming delay in Christ's promised return. And it says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you 
your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. He told the Jews, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. His heart of compassion is one that warns because he loves. And so that's the principle of judgment. But then we come to the third aspect of the parable, and that is the peril of judgment. Look at verse 50. <clears throat> and we'll throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, folks, that is a horrifying, fearful verse. If there's any doctrine in the Bible that you wish was not there, it's the doctrine of hell. Uh, but that does not eliminate it. It's too clear, too often repeated in Scripture to deny it or to ignore it. So these are terrifying words from our Lord. As I said before, he spoke more about hell than anyone else, and I think there's a reason. I believe that if Jesus hadn't taught us about hell, we wouldn't believe it from anyone else. It had to be him because it's so inconceivable, so horrifying, so frightening that it causes us to be repulsed at the very thought. You see, we cannot conceive of eternal damnation. It, so it had to be Jesus to say it, or we would never have been able to accept it. But it was his own special emphasis. He was a preacher of hell. And if you don't think he did, then you haven't been paying much attention to his ministry here in Matthew as we've gone through it. Let me just briefly give you a run through. Don't turn with me. Just listen and jot down the verses if you care to. In Matthew 5.22, he said, Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In chapter 5, verse 29, he says, But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, The sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In chapter 11, verse 20, we're told he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And in verse 23, he says, You will descend to Hades. In chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, he says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. In chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into fiery hell. And in chapter 23, verse 33, he tells the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? This was a constant part of what our Lord taught. It's found in Mark 9, Luke 6, Luke 12, Luke 16, it just goes on and on. Jesus told a whole story about a rich man who died and went to hell and was in torment and begged Father Abraham 
to send someone to come with water and cool his tongue. So if so, then if you were to evaluate what our emphasis ought to be in preaching today, based on the example of Christ, it should be preaching on hell. Our generation doesn't do that. It's convicting that we say so little about hell. If a preacher preaches on hell more than once or twice, the people usually get upset because it's so disturbing. It's so hard to believe. It's so terrifying. It's so awesome. So it had to come from the Lord or we'd never be able to accept it. You can understand why someone would reject the Bible and God because when you hear how awful it is and that God is going to send people to hell for eternity, it's so repulsive that our sinful human minds automatically want to reject such a doctrine and the God who would send someone there. In his autobiography, Charles Darwin wrote, quote, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine, end quote. Bertrand Russell rejected Christianity because of the doctrine of hell. Here's what he wrote. Quote, I must say that I think all this doctrine that hellfire is a punishment for sin is a doctrine of cruelty. It is a doctrine that puts cruelty into the world and gave the world generations of cruel torture and the Christ of the Gospels, if you take him as his chroniclers present him, would certainly have to be considered partly responsible for that, end quote. So he blamed Jesus for spreading the doctrine of hell. At least Russell was consistent because you can't accept Jesus as God and a great teacher and reject what he said about hell as if he got that part wrong. So then, what is this furnace of fire? What is hell? Well, let me give you four truths about hell that I think will answer that question and help us partially grasp its terror. First, Hell is a place of constant torment, misery, and pain. It is a place of unrelieved torment. And the Bible describes it as darkness, outer darkness. It is deep pit darkness. Darkness that's way out from the light. Impenetrable darkness. Darkness that closes in. Have you ever been in total darkness and longed for light? Our family once stopped on vacation and toured Mammoth Cave in western Kentucky. And the guides took us deep inside the cave, far from the entrance, so that it was impossible for any light to penetrate, and then turned out all the lights. We stood there for a while, and I hoped that my eyes would eventually adjust to the dark, but they never did because there was no light whatsoever to hit the retinas of my eyes. It's truly outer darkness. To be in that all-encompassing kind of darkness and know that for all of the eons of eternity, you will never see light. That's how Jesus described hell. 
unrelieved darkness forever with no hope of light, no hope of dawn. And the Bible also says it's a fire. Now, it's not a fire that we know of as fire to burn something in this world. But fire is God's way of describing it because it is a torturous, unrelieved kind of burning fire more terrible than any fire that we would ever know. It's called the lake of fire. So it's a place of absolute darkness which burns with an indescribable intensity causing great torment to the damned. It's a place of no light and no relief forever and ever. No relief from the suffering, only agony and pain forever. And there's only two times in all of Scripture that we have any insight into how people respond to hell. <clears throat> the one is in the Lord's parable in Luke 16, where it says that the man cried out in torment and said, cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. And the other is that constant statement of our Lord, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The response to hell is not fun. It is weeping. That's crying and wailing and screaming and grinding of teeth and pain. That's what the Bible says. That's hell. It's a place of unrelieved torment. Second, it is a place of unrelieved torment for both body and soul. Neither the soul nor the body is annihilated at death, nor will they ever be. Soul is the inner man, the real person, and when an unbeliever dies, their soul goes out of the presence of God into the torment of hell. Their soul descends into that torment. But in the future, there will be a resurrection of all of the dead, and the bodies of the unsaved will be raised also. And those resurrected bodies will join the soul in hell's uh, eternal torment and they will be given a body that will then go into the lake of fire it will not be a body like the body that we have now it will be a very different one just as believers will be resurrected with a new special body that can live in heaven so too unbelievers will be resurrected with a special body which can endure the torments of the lake of fire for all of eternity that's what the bible says they'll be tormented forever that's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus spoke of hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, when a body decays in the grave, worms, maggots, enter that body and they begin to consume that body. And the worms will die when the food is gone. So once the body is consumed, the worms die. But in hell, the worms never die because the body, though it is continually being burned, is never consumed. So the worm never dies. In other words, the Lord was saying the torment of the body goes on and on and on and on relentlessly without end eternally. And it says the fire is not quenched. 
A fire always goes out when the fuel is gone. Whatever it is, whether it's wood or gas or whatever it might be, when the fuel runs out, the fire goes out. But in hell, the fuel will never be gone. Though the burning goes on, the fuel's never concerned, and so you have unrelieved torment of body and soul. Third, the torments of hell will be experienced in varying degrees. The torments of hell will be experienced in varying degrees. In other words, for some people, hell will be worse than for others. For all the people who are there, it will be horrible. It will be the ultimate form of suffering, and there will be no relief for that, but there will be even greater, more severe degrees of suffering for some. Hebrews 10.29 says, How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, people who have stepped on Jesus Christ, who have rejected his cross, will know a greater hell than those who have not. So just as there will be differing rewards in heaven, there will be differing degrees of punishment in hell. You'll recall that just three chapters back in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 15, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And in chapter 11, verse 22, he said, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in that day of judgment than for you. And just two verses later, he says, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, it's only relative. It's, it's going to be horrible, unrelenting, torturous punishment for everyone, but it will appear to be more tolerable for some than for others because of the degree of the light of truth which some received. And then we have this, that incredible parable in Luke 12 where Jesus says, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many beatings, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a beating will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and, from that, from, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. And what's the That's Luke 12, 47 and 48. So hell will be unrelieved torment of body and soul in varying degrees. The great theologian John Gerstner wrote, quote, Hell will have such severe degrees that a sinner, were he able, would give the whole world if his sins could be one less. Fourth, the torment of hell will be everlasting, eternal. Nothing will be so horrible about hell as its endlessness. The fire never goes out. The light never dawns. The sweet relief of death never comes. It is endless. Think about this. The only reason that you and I can make it through many of the trials and pain and suffering and disease we experience in this life is because we believe there will be an end to it. We have hope. 
But the people in hell won't have that. They will experience the total absence of hope. You can imagine the resultant insanity that will come. Over the past few hundred years, there have been some theologians who have taught that hell will eventually result in annihilation. Uh, that is the abolishing of the sinner's being. Uh, they claim that eventually the sinner's sins will be atoned for with an adequate degree of punishment and then they will be annihilated and thus the punishment will end. They teach that because they recognize that the doc they teach that because they recognize that the doctrine of hell is so awful, so terrifying, so agonizing to the imagination that they can't comprehend why God would punish someone eternally for a temporal amount of sin. They say, well, that person only lived for 80 years, so why would God punish them eternally for 80 years of sin? In fact, some otherwise excellent theologians have dared to adopt this view simply by their own admission because they find the doctrine of eternal hell so utterly repugnant. It hurts deeply, deeply, to think of your family members and friends being eternally punishment punished for their sin and rejection of Jesus Christ. So this is one of those times when it's very important to submit our thinking to the Word of God and not to our sin-tainted logic. Yes? That's where I'm going. <laughs> So let's do that. Let's dive into the deep end of the theological pool for a couple of minutes. That kind of thinking always betrays just what Frank was about to say, a misunderstanding of the nature of sin. Sin is not merely a temporal violation of some kind of arbitrary rule against certain behaviors. It is an infinite offense. It is cosmic treason against an eternal and infinitely holy God. If God is infinitely worthy of all love, honor, and obedience, then any sin against him is a violation of an infinite obligation to love, honor, and obey him. And thus it is an infinite evil. And an infinite evil deserves an infinite punishment. In fact, infinite punishment is exactly what it deserves in order to satisfy God's justice. But you see, if God did not punish sin, because if God did not punish sin with eternal punishment, he would not be just. Because an infinite sin against an infinite de God deserves infinite punishment. So then the annihilationist comes back and says, well, that eternal punishment for a temporal period of sin violates the mercy of God. However, folks, it's not contrary to God's mercy to inflict eternal punishment on sinful men. In fact, it would be a great defect in his character and not a perfection if the sovereign and supreme judge of the world was merciful in such a sense that he could not bear to execute eternal justice. While his penalty 
While his mercy is infinite, at the same time, remember this, God is free and sovereign in terms of exercising it. That is, God is not obligated to exercise it at the expense of his justice. God is absolutely sovereign in both the exercise of justice and the exercise of mercy, and he chooses when he will exercise justice and extend mercy. And the scriptures make it clear that when it comes to eternal hell, he chooses to execute his eternal infinite justice and withhold his infinite mercy. And then we go, then we must go to God's word and accept what it says at face value. We must not exercise linguistic gymnastics in order to try to change the plain meaning of Scripture to fit with what our own desires might be. The Bible makes it clear that punishment in hell is eternal. Here's one, if you haven't written down any other verse, write this one down. In Matthew 25, 46, speaking of the final judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now that tells us that it is just as everlasting as heaven. Whatever everlasting life is in terms of its length, so is everlasting punishment. I know of no theologian who teaches that we only go to heaven for the finite number of years that we were saved while we were on earth. And yet some of them try to say that hell is only for a finite number of years. That's hogwash. Because Jesus is the one who said that punishment in hell is eternal and everlasting just as eternal life is everlasting. Now keep in mind that hell was not originally prepared for man. It was prepared for Satan and his demons. But when Adam fell, God determined that sinful man would also be sent there because those who choose to follow Satan make him their father. And they will also suffer their father's fate. It's inconceivable misery. Many people's souls have been in that kind of torment for thousands of years. And one day their bodies will be resurrected and they will be reunited with their soul and then cast eternally into hell. And they are no closer to the end now than when they began. No wonder Jesus had to teach this doctrine to warn people about it. The great Puritan writer and preacher John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, described hell with his customary vivid imagery in his treatise, which was titled Sighs from Hell. And he wrote these words, quote, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble and thine hair ready to stand upright on thy head. But oh, what wilt thou do when not only the supposition of the devils 
appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with thee, howling, roaring, and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou wilt be even at thy wit's end and ready to run stark mad again for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art amongst, thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell so many thousand years, as there are stars in the firmament, or drops in the sea, or sands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, ever. How will it torment thy soul? End quote. That's a vivid and frightening description, isn't it? And most people, most people are in that dragnet, which is moving towards the inevitable furnace of fire. Whew. That leads us to the final point, which is the proclamation. It comes in the form of another parable. But before I do that, let me... Just find out. Let me pause here for a moment to give your brain a moment to get some relief. <laughs> Are there any comments or questions? You know, these people, like in the war with Israel right now, they think they are doing so much good. The second they yeah. is where they are. Yeah, sad, huh? And they're desperate to try to tell those that are still there. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those. So. Yes? I must have a question, um, Bruce, about, like, does the Lord, did you, how, as you say that again, he uses his infinite justice and holds back his infinite mercy? Mm -hmm. In terms of the punishment of hell. Think about it. God is under no obligation to exercise mercy. He, 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 can, he is sovereign. Think about what he said, the whole, the whole thing in, in Romans 9, 10, 11, the choice between Esau and Jacob. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And, right. you know, so. Right. So, that, so, so that's yeah. how that, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. And then think about the hell, like, because um, it's darkness, complete darkness, but then, like, the sounds, like, the, those are, you know, it, 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 do we, is it like noise? We can, could, can they hear others, the noise of others? Or we, we, we don't like <laughs> As much as I love John Bunyan, he's speculating yeah. that they can hear those noises. Yeah. But at the same time, there's nothing that says they couldn't. I mean, think about it. The man who was in Hades was aware of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Yeah. Remember that? So. I thought it was interesting because that just the Lord kind of opened my. I just read that recently, and my mom and stuff. And so I was thinking like, I made, it was interesting to see, and like it was Luke 16, I think it was, mm -hmm. where the Lord said, um, like uh, that, that. Let's see. Let me just go um, it was interesting to see how he said about about the. And uh, between there's a chasm between mm -hmm. the great chasm, but then it says so. Um, but those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. So, you know, possibly they could see yeah. them. They will not. Be Remember, able. it's a parable. It's a you what? can't. It's a parable. Okay. You cannot take, take the things of a parable 
and directly apply them in every detail. Okay? So so don't don't say, oh, this means this means we're gonna be able to see and back and forth. It doesn't mean that at all. It, but it's it's apparent. Frank is gonna add wisdom to this. Okay. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to see because in heaven we're gonna be consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ filled with joy. What kind of joy would you experience if you could see people suffering like Unimaginable yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. the other thing says is that, um, uh, but none, but none may cross over from there to us. Like in mm -hmm. other words, like it's a, so I thought that kind of caught my attention. You can't go back and forth. Uh -huh. Yeah. Once you're there, you're yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, I deserve to go to hell, right? Till God saves me. Every one of us. I will, will I always deserve to go to hell? Till I've been forgiven. In that sense, in eternity. In the, in the sense that you're still a sinner. And all sinners deserve to go to hell. And as the song says, all I have is Christ. All I have is Him. I was talking to the Jehovah Witness set up their stands right off the sidewalk. So they're not on the ceiling. And I was talking with one of them a while back. And we're done on annihilationism. And uh, I told him I cared about him, and I believe that if he died, he'd go to hell and suffer forever. And uh, they try to say, well, you're a parent, you have children, don't you? And God's a loving Heavenly Father, and he would never be. And I told him, uh, I was referring to scriptures, but I was like, ye are of your father the devil, and of your deeds you will do. You are not all God's children. And he said, keep walking. <laughs> and that's when I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, I care about you, I'm praying for you. But when I, when I remember that I deserve to go to St. Paul, that man is, then I care for him, and I'm not trying to win the argument. Yeah. Frank, is your hand up again? Yeah, I just wanted to say, in this whole doctrine of hell, a lot of people don't like it. I think it's a big detriment because the deeper, and the more you know and understand of hell, the greater will the joy be of the knowledge of eternal life in heaven. When we don't understand hell, put it this way, this doctrine you're talking about God's wrath, it is a necessary part of the gospel. It's not a hell, you don't need the gospel. Right? What do you need the gospel for? There's no, no hell, no wrath. So because of wrath, the more you understand it, and as Bruce said, we need to hear it more, we need to read it more, and understand it more. Because the more we see the depth of hell, the greater is our appreciation of the gospel and what Jesus Christ did. That's critical for us. Yeah. Amanda? So, oh. What Frank just said, why is modern day evangelism so adverse to even using the word? If you watch any kind of a, uh, a short commercial on TV, it says, do you know if you're going to heaven or not? You call this number to find out if you're going to heaven or not. Not if you're going to hell. So. I'll, exactly for the reason that, that we've been saying all along. Modern day evangelicalism is afraid to talk about hell because the moment you do, you are ostracized, hated, and rejected. Only those who are the Lord is truly calling will even bother to listen to you. <laughs> so, just a minute. Keep having hands. Go, keep going, Richard. Surely, human language is grossly inadequate to describe heaven or hell. 
how much worse must hell be than yeah. what you just described? Yeah. We always talk about how wonderful heaven will be, and we try to describe it, and we even say, we can't even describe it. We can't begin to describe it. Folks, the same words apply to hell. Amanda. Along the same lines of what Frank was saying, annihilationism then is a, in a sense a denial of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You can pay for your own sin by being in Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Um, here we are sinners. But I want to know when we get to heaven, we are going to be like Christ and he's glorified, so I believe we will be. We will be wholly sanctified, without sin. And boy, am I looking forward to that day. So what are you preaching this in the church? <laughs> I honestly thought about that, that this is that I might want to make this a sermon I preach in when I fill in. It's a, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, our time is up. Yeah. <laughs>